Yeah, my name is Jordan Adams. I'm the, the college pastor here. We're going to keep going in our John 4 mini-series today. So if you got your Bibles, you can start flipping there. Um, but yeah, I, I was thinking about how to sort of summarize what we talked about last week. And have you guys read the book Unbroken? Now, notice what I didn't say is, have you seen the movie Unbroken? Because the movie's garbage. The book is good. Garbage was a little strong, but I have passionate feelings about how bad this movie is in comparison to how good the book is. So if you've only seen the movie or haven't seen any of them, read the book. So Unbroken is a story about Louis Zamperini. He's a World War II vet, and uh, his plane went down over the Pacific, and he spent, uh, I think it was 47 days on a raft trying to survive with just him and some of his friends. And for 47 days, they had essentially no food and no water, and they tried to survive, and they did. They made it, but then they floated onto some Japanese-occupied territory and were prisoners of war for a while. And it's this insane survival story. Um, and he actually ends up becoming a Christian through this whole thing and like learning to forgive the people that have done him wrong, all that stuff. Um, and, and it's just this, it's this crazy story. Okay. So this is like just a little spoiler, but hopefully it'll, it, it'll get you to read the book. There's one point where Louis is on this raft and there's a Japanese plane shooting at him from above. So he dives into the water and then sharks are trying to eat him. So he's literally like fighting off sharks while getting shot at from the top. So it's this crazy story and he survives all of it. But there's this one part in the, the book that sort of stuck with me. It, it was, I don't even remember where it was, but it was just this little piece of it. And it talked about the sort of dark irony of essentially, yeah, dying of thirst and being completely surrounded by water right? Like how weird is that to be completely surrounded by water, but dying of thirst? But the thing is that that water not only couldn't quench his thirst, but it actually made the thirst worse, right? And so that's, that's actually what it's like for us as human beings. And that's what John 4 talks about, is that, that we are in life, dying of thirst. The way that Jesus talks about it with this woman that he's talking with is that she's, she's longing, she has this deep ache for something different, something more than what she has, but, but nothing will satisfy it, right? So we're dying of thirst and we're surrounded by water. We're surrounded by all of this stuff that is gonna offer to quench your thirst. Money, power, fame, good stuff like, like family, friends, relationships, all of that is, is gonna offer to quench your thirst, but none of it can actually satisfy your soul. And in fact, if you go there to try and quench your thirst, it's actually going to make it worse. That's kind of the, the human condition. And, and that's what we talked about last week. And we're going to keep talking about that and sort of advance that idea a little bit further. And we're going to go back to this conversation that Jesus has with this woman, but he's actually going to transition the conversation to this idea of worship. And I think that this is why he transitions the conversation. He wants us to see that whatever that thing is for you that you're going to to satisfy your soul, that's actually the thing that you worship. That's your functional God. In fact, the word worship means to ascribe worth. 
it, it, it's communicating this idea of the, the thing that you think deserves worth, praise, significance, and you ascribe worth to it, that's, that's what you worship. And, and here's, here's the thing. We all do this all the time. It's natural for us. It's intuitive for us. Okay, so I once led the Viking skull chant from this stage. Okay, if you've, if you've been at this church for a while, you will remember this moment. And if you haven't been at this church for a while, you might be thinking, what in the world? Uh, yeah, that's fair. Maybe shouldn't have done it, but I was caught up in the moment, okay? It was, it was a big moment, and something happens to me when you give me a mic and you put me in front of you guys. I just get excited and weird stuff happens. And so the weird thing that happened, okay, you guys know the Viking skull chant. We're not going to do it, right? But it's like the whole like skull. Okay, so we did that from this stage because the Minneapolis miracle had just happened. And if you've been living under a rock and don't know what that is, uh, it, was, it was this moment when the Vikings were, were in the playoffs and it looked like they were about to be out. It was down to the last play. And you guys remember this, right? He, they throw it deep to Stefan Diggs and Diggs goes up and he grabs it. And the Saints defender mysteriously just whiffs, like is just tackling air. And then Diggs like is about to step out, keeps his balance, and then runs down the sideline on the last play of the game to win it, Right. And then this city collectively lost its mind, right? Like I went back and watched it this week and the announcers stopped announcing. They just started yelling. They're literally just screaming. And then like they, they pan around uh, U.S. Bank Stadium. I almost said the Metrodome. They pan around U.S. Bank Stadium and people are like high-fiving. They're hugging. There's people that are crying. There's compilations on YouTube of people reacting to this in their houses where they're just sprinting around their house screaming. There's one dude that takes his shirt off and is like waving it around, right? Okay. That's worship. That's worship. On Sundays... U.S. Bank Stadium is the largest temple in our city. Now, look, I'm not hating on that. I, I love football. I'm like one of those people that does that, okay? I'm not, I'm not a fun hater, but I, I want you to see what are people doing in that moment. They're caught up in something bigger than themselves, and they're ascribing worth to it. They, they want to be a part of it. They're saying this matters, and they're enjoying it in the moment. So this is my point. It's not a question in your life of whether you will worship or not. You are a worshiper. That's what it means to be a human. The question is just who or what you're going to worship. And so this is, this is where we're going today. I want to talk about false worship and what that means. And then I want, to talk, I want to get into this next conversation that Jesus has with this woman about what true worship is. And I want to look at what does it mean to become true worshipers and then how do we get the power to actually become a true worshiper? Okay, so first, false worship. False worship is called idolatry. Idolatry. Tim Keller gives a good definition of this. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value then I'll feel significant and secure. I want you to actually think about that. I think sometimes we think about sin at a, a surface behavior level, but I want you to, to process a little bit deeper. What are those things in your life that you're looking to to feel significant, to feel secure? Or, or another way to get at this is idols cause out-of-control emotion. 
So what's the thing that you're terrified of losing? What causes you fear? What causes you anxiety, anger? Or maybe on the positive end, what just gets you like unnecessarily hyped? What are you, what are you sort of obsessed with? What do you naturally think about all the time? Okay, whatever that thing is, I've likely just introduced you to your functional God. It's what you're worshiping. And I want you to notice something that I think is important in, in Keller's definition. It's the thing that we go to to figure out if we have value or significance. So in other words, I said that worship is to ascribe worth to something. But when we go to our idols, these, these tendencies towards areas of sin in our life, we're not only ascribing worth to them, we're looking at them to ascribe worth back to us. We want to be worth something and we want someone or something to tell us that we're significant. The more I learn about myself, the more I, I talk with people about their problems, the more I figure out that, that life kind of comes back to a few foundational questions. And one of them is this, what am I worth? Okay, so you, you see this in little kids. I remember a, a few years ago, uh, my niece Fallon she was like, I think she was like three or four, uh, got dressed up as a ladybug for Halloween because that's scary. Um, but she gets dressed up as a ladybug and she comes running into the living room and she's got this ladybug outfit on with like her little antenna things or whatever they are. And she runs up to me and she looks me in the eyes with her like big blue eyes and she just goes, I'm a ladybug because she can't say the word or the letter L. So just, I'm a ladybug. And then she kind of spun around and said like, ta-da, Okay, what did Fallon want? She wanted me to see her, right? She wanted me to acknowledge that, that she's beautiful, that she's significant in my eyes. Why would any little boy do whatever it takes to make their dad proud? Because they want their dad to look at him and say, you matter to me. Here's my point. We still have that in us. Like we're still asking that question. We're just asking it of different things. So we, we talked about this a little bit last week. I want to dig into it just a touch more. A lot of us are asking it of relationships. Either of our current relationships that aren't quite good enough or of the future relationship that you hope you have that you sort of don't feel complete until you have that relationship. There's this really good quote by this, this guy named Ernest Becker, who's a lecturer at Berkeley. Okay, I know. I'm quoting you a lecturer at Berkeley. It's a little academic, I get it, but this is like, this is so insightful. He studies romantic love and like what it's done to our culture. And he, he sees the same thing that we've turned romantic love into this godlike thing in our culture. So listen to this. I think it's super insightful. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position, this kind of God-like position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know that our existence hasn't been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human beings can't give you that. Are you looking for redemption in relationships, someone to tell you that you're significant, that you're important, that you're worth something. No human being can give you that. 
We talked about other stuff. We talked about success, right? That, that if I can just succeed in this way that sort of I've defined as important, then I know that I'm okay. Then I know that my life is worth it. But here's the problem. There's always going to be another thing that you're going to have to achieve and you're never going to get there. There will always be more that you have to go get. I want to focus in on, on kind of a surprising one that I think is kind of a deceptive form of idolatry. The idol of religion. The idol of religion. And what this is, is essentially trying to put God in your debt through your moral performance, right? So it's this idea that if I can, if I can just live this life that I was supposed to live, if I can go through the, the rhythms that I know are good, if I can go to church, if I can go to connection group, if I can read my Bible, if I can do the stuff of a Christian, then I'm going to be okay. Then God will bless me. He's going to be okay with me. And if I don't do that stuff, then he's not. And, and don't, don't let yourself off the hook too quickly on this. If you say, like, I know that we're forgiven by grace. It's easy to say that and still try and perform still be driven by this religious performance. Guys, I, I talk about being saved by grace for a living, and this is my biggest struggle in life, I think, is that I tell you that you're saved by grace, that there's nothing you can do to impress God, and even in that moment, I'm trying to impress him and trying to impress you. My heart, I don't want to be dependent on him. I want to be dependent on myself, and I want to prove that I actually can do this Christian thing the right way. And when I do quote unquote well, I think that he's gonna bless me for that. And when I don't, I'm afraid that he's not. Here's what's so dangerous about this is the very thing that you're trying to use to get you to God, your Christianity, could be what's keeping you from him. And idols always make promises that they can't keep. Idols always make promises that they can't keep. And so does the idol of religion. Here's the promise that that idol makes you. If you can just perform, if you can just do well, if you can just look like a Christian and do the Christian stuff, then you're going to live a blessed, happy life where you know that you're secure in your relationship with God. But here's what it's actually going to produce in you. Fear. Because one of, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to admit that you can't live up to that standard, that you're more messed up than you want anybody else to know, than you want God to know, and you're going to be afraid that you can't be loved in the middle of that. Or you're going to put on the face, you're going to act like you're fine, like you have it together, like you've got this Christianity thing covered, and you're always going to be afraid that somebody's going to find you out. That someone will learn how messed up you actually are. That you're not actually as good of a Christian as you want everyone else to believe. False worship always makes promises that it can't keep. And it will always fail you. But that's the beauty of true worship. I want to talk to you about true worship now. So my question is this, what is true worship and how do we get the power to do it? Okay, so let's, let's look at the text here. We're going we're gonna to shift to John 4 verse 19. So Jesus is again going to shift the conversation. So last week we talked about how there was this apparent change in direction, right? They were, they were talking about water and then all of a sudden they're talking about, a, about the husband, 
But that wasn't actually a shift in conversation. It was a dive deeper into that. I think the same thing is happening here. They're apparently going to shift away from the conversation and start talking about worship, but they're actually going to dive deeper. Verse 19. The woman said this to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Okay, do you see what she's asking here? She's asking who is doing worship the right way. There was this debate that she brings up. This was a, this was a hot button issue. She brings up this debate between who's doing worship the right way. Is it the Samaritans who have a temple of their own or is it the Jews have a temple that have a temple of their own? Who's, who's going about it the right way? Who has the right ceremonies, the, the right ways of approaching God? And her question is revealing about what she thinks it means to worship God. She thinks it's about all of the stuff that you can do to get to God. Does that sound familiar? That was my life growing up. I'm, I'm thankful for my church that I had. It, it, there's a lot of stuff that, I, that they told me that I'm sure that I missed because I was a punk. But my understanding about what it meant to be a Christian was if you just have the right formula, if you, if you have the right equation, at the end of it, you'll get God. So, so if you do the church stuff, if, if you don't drink, if you don't cuss, because those are like the worst things in the world, if you don't do any of that, then you're going to be okay. Then maybe you can get to God. And I spent my life trying to figure out this formula. What two things do I need to put together in order to get God at the end? And I, it was never enough. I could never really figure it out. But listen, Jesus is going to absolutely shatter this woman's paradigm of what worship is. And I think it shatters ours too. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. Okay, stop there. That for us is like not that big of a deal. For her, that's like, like mind blown. That is, that is crazy. Why? Because throughout religious history, the only place that you could get to God was the temple, right? If you wanted to be forgiven of your sins, you had to go to the temple. If you wanted to, to meet with God, you had to go to the temple. If, if you wanted to learn more about him, you had to go to the temple because that's the place where God lived. That was the meeting point between heaven and earth was through the temple. And if you wanted God, you had to go there. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you don't have to go to the temple anymore. There's an entirely new way of getting to me. He's flipping thousands of years of religious history on its head. And she didn't really like that answer. I'm going to read it to you in a second, but this is essentially what she says. Like, eh, I don't think you're right. I'm going to wait till this Messiah guy comes and he'll explain it, right? Look at this, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ when he comes, he will tell us all things. And the next sentence out of Jesus's mouth is going to change this woman's life forever. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Or I think a better translation is, I am. Jesus, for the first time to this woman, it's been weird through this whole conversation she doesn't have a clue who this guy is. She thinks he's socially awkward. 
She's just, she's confused by this whole conversation. She's sitting next to him at this well. And then in a moment, everything clicks. Why? Because Jesus has revealed who he is. God has come. God is with his people. And when it clicked, her whole life changed. See, worship this whole time, true worship, it's never been about a place. It's never been about a certain set of practices. It's never been about the stuff that you can do for God. It's always been about a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the one that we worship and he's come near. He's with us. Why were temples so important to ancient religions? Why were they so important? Because it was the place where God dwelled. It was the place where he lived and you could go there to be with God. But now Jesus is saying, we don't need temples anymore because God is with us. And what it means to worship is not to do a set of things. It's to enjoy the person of Jesus Christ, to be with him. And that's actually better than any idol that you're running to. C.S. Lewis puts it really well. This is one of my, one of my favorite quotes. I'm probably going to use it again sometime. Deal with it. It's great. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. You catch what he's saying? Yeah, Christianity is hard. Look, if you're going to live this thing for the rest of your life, you're going to suffer. You're going to live a hard life. It's harder than sin, but it's so much better than sin. An invite to Christianity is not an invite to a lame, sort of fun-hating life. An invite to Christianity is an invite to infinite joy, to a better life, the life that you were made for. When, when you're running to your selfishness, when you're running to your pride, when you're running to your religion, when you're running to your relationships, you're making mud pies. And Jesus is standing there going, hey, you want to go to the ocean? I got a place that's way better than this. I've got a lifestyle that is better than you could possibly imagine. And you're so distracted by the mud in front of you that you can't see the holiday at the sea. I'm telling you that following Jesus is the best life that you could ever live. That he offers you joy and pleasure and satisfaction to your soul. What you've been longing for, he has for you, but you got to get out of the mud to see it, to see how awesome it is. Jesus is so much better than worshiping idols. Jesus is better than the idol of relationships because every person is either gonna leave you or they're gonna fail you. But Jesus will never leave or forsake you. He will be by your side into eternity. He literally will never leave. Jesus is better than the idol of success. You're, you're, you're terrified of failing because you want to be worth something. You want to be important. You want to be significant. Here's, here's the scary thing. You have failed. You have. I have. 
We've spiritually failed. Do you know what idols are? It's not just that they're negative for your life. They're abandoning the God who made you to chase after something else. You're cheating on God. That's what it is when you run to anything but him. We have failed. But here's what's so amazing is Jesus has never failed. And he wants to give you credit for everything that he did that you never did. And so now you can fail and it won't change your standing before him. You can fail and it won't change your identity because you have a new one in him. He's everything that you should have been, that I should have been, and that we aren't. He's everything for us. Jesus is better than the idol of religion. Why? Because your relationship with him is not dependent on your performance. You think that Jesus hates you because of your web browser history or because of your doubts, or because you don't read your Bible, or because you aren't the parent that you should be. And, and we carry the shame of sin constantly. And it's, it's because you, you think that he can't forgive that sin. Maybe the first time, but not the hundredth. You're right to feel kind of that sting of shame for sin, because we are guilty. But you're wrong that Jesus can't forgive you. If you're broken, if you're screwed up, if you're more disgusting than anyone realizes, you are exactly the person that Jesus wants. Because Jesus doesn't love you because of what you do. He loves you in spite of what you do. Worshiping Jesus is better than worshiping false gods. It's so much better. Do you know what it's like to have that freedom? Do you know what it's like to live as a Christian, not because someone told you to or you feel like you should, but because you want to, because you've tasted grace, you've tasted the life that you've always wanted and you want more of it? Here's the thing. How do we actually get the power to live like that? I don't think the problem is that we don't know the way that we should live. The problem is how do we get the power to actually live that way? Okay, look back at verse 23. I love this about this text. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? I think truth is fairly self-explanatory. You worship him based on who he's revealed that he is. But what does it mean to worship in spirit? Okay, so remember what I said about the temple, right? That, that the temple was built as the meeting place between God and man where heaven met earth. And then Jesus came and he dwelt among us and, and he became the new temple. But guess what? The Bible takes that even further. Okay, I want to I jump real quick to the book of Ephesians. You can flip there if you want or it's going to be on the screen. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21 says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Okay, so that's what we've said to this point, right? Is that, that there's this new temple that's being built 
And Jesus is the cornerstone of that temple, of the place where God dwells. But then listen to this next verse. In him, verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, back up. Where's the new place that God lives? Like, where is the most holy place on this planet? Where is the new holy of holies? You. You. That's nuts. Like, okay, the place where significant people live is really valuable, right? Bill Gates' house is nuts. How much is that thing worth? 123 million, Googled it. Bill Gates' house is worth $123 million. You are infinitely more valuable than that because God is infinitely more valuable than Bill Gates. And his house, the place where he lives on earth is you. He, God, God threw a temple dedication ceremony when you came to know Jesus. You, you placed your faith in him. Okay, you repented and believed and said, Jesus, you're the, you're the Lord of my life. And this is what God did. He sent his presence down. His name's the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Trinity. I'm not going to try and explain that. It's confusing. But he, he's equally God. Like he was there in the beginning when God was making the universe. And he comes down and then he lives in you forever. And he will never leave you. Because you're his new temple. You're the new place where he lives. And this is what the Holy Spirit does when he starts living you. Is he, he starts sweeping out the place. He fixes it up. He starts painting the walls. He, he adds a deck on the back porch. That didn't make any sense. He adds a deck and a porch. We'll call it that. But he starts fixing the place up. And all of a sudden you start to live differently because the spirit of God lives in you and you're his house now. And so you live differently. Okay, so there's these, um, these incredible people uh, named, so they're, they're called savants. So I think some of you guys know who these are, right? But they're these people who have like this part of their brain that essentially gets unlocked and they can do like superhuman stuff. And so there's, there's this savant named Stephen who he's an artist and he can remember things. He's got like a, a, a photogenic memory and he got in a helicopter and he flew over New York City and he just flew around at once. He, he took a couple notes and, and then he, he walked into the studio after he got done with the flight and he, he sat down with pen and paper and he drew the New York skyline from memory. I'm not talking about like a couple of the buildings. I'm talking about the entire New York skyline. And some of them were down to the exact number of windows. It's just crazy. And there's, there's actually people who can become savants. Actually, it's, it's weird. They, they get a head trauma, but then they recover from it. And like there was a guy that had head trauma. He recovered. And then he woke up and he had this like insatiable desire to play the piano. And he had, he had never been a musician, never played the piano before, and he just wanted to play the piano. And so he, he walked over to a, a piano, and he opened it up, and he sat down, and he could just play. I'm, I'm talking like, like Mozart. He could, he, could, he could play classical music out of nowhere. Okay. 
When the Spirit of God comes into you, he unlocks a new part of your humanity. And now you can do things that you never used to be able to do before. You, you actually can obey Jesus. You actually can follow him. You've got new desires where you want him more than you want sin. You've got a greater ability to be selfless than you used to be because he's enabling that in you. So here's the implications of you being the new temple of God. You can actually be a true worshiper. You can actually worship Jesus. Before, no matter what you did, you couldn't please God. It was wrapped up in too much sin. Now you can honor him with the way that you live your life. And it's a beautiful thing to honor Jesus. Secondly, you are infinitely valuable because you're the place where God lives. He is infinitely valuable, and so now you are infinitely valuable, which means you have found the answer to your question of worth. What are you worth? You are worth the Son of God going to a cross to be murdered in your place and then getting up out of the grave to bring you to new life too. You are worth him sending the Holy Spirit to live with you forever. You are worth heaven. You are worth God crossing every boundary to get to you because you are made in his image and he wanted that image to come alive in you. So what happens when that clicks in your heart? Well, I want you to look just briefly at this woman this is how our story ends. As this woman realizes that Jesus is the Messiah, it clicks for her. And what does she do? It says that she runs back into the city and she says, come see the man who told me everything that I have ever done. Okay, in other words, if you were here last week, we talked about how this woman is a social outcast because of her sin. She's been avoiding people at all costs. And what does she do? She runs to the very people that she's been avoiding, the very people that have kicked her out of her community. And what does she do? She admits that she's a sinner. She says, you guys know what I've done. He knows what I've done. Let's just talk about this. Come see him. Why? Because her shame is gone. Did it change her past? No, she still has the past that she had, but now she's got a new future because she met Jesus and he's more important to her than the shame of her past. And what else is true? Her joy is infectious. You tell people about the stuff that you love, right? And when she fell in love with Jesus, she couldn't help but going and telling somebody about it. And this whole town comes out to see Jesus because of this woman. And who, know, who knows how many people of them had the same experience that she did. It says that God is, is looking over the earth for true worshipers. He's looking for people who will worship in spirit and in truth. Will his eyes land on you? Do you worship like that? Have you experienced what it's like to, to love a God like that? to have him come and live in you and to change you? Do you know what it's like to actually worship him? Let me pray. Jesus, I love that you've made a way back 
for us. I think it's crazy that you can, that you can change us, that you can kind of conform us into your image, that, um, that we don't have to be the same. I've tried so many times to be impressive without you, and it did not go well. We've all done that. But we praise you that that's not what we have to rely on anymore, that we can know you, we can worship in spirit and truth. And God, would this text be true of us? Would we be genuine worshipers? Would we know what it's like to live as the holy people of God? I love that verse that we're the royal priesthood, a holy nation. Teach us to live like that. Thanks so much for coming to get us. Thanks so much for not leaving us in our sin. Thanks so much for making a way back to God and teaching us what it looks like to, to worship him. Yeah, we, we love you and this is all for you. Amen.